The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. So you know what? I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to forego a typical introduction for this sermon. So I will ask forgiveness to my preaching professor um, in seminary for this one, but I couldn't help but but think as as Craig led us in prayer for the church in Afghanistan, I couldn't help but be reminded of how grateful I am for this. In our time together, we've been journeying through the seven churches of Revelation, and all of the news that I am seeing is reminding me a lot of our second church, the church in Smyrna. Do you remember the second church who faced incredible persecution and who Jesus looks at this church with such sweet compassion and says, I see you. Do not be afraid. Even if it takes your life, do not be afraid because yours is a crown that is everlasting. I could not help but be reminded as we were praying for this church uh, this morning of how God's word never changes and never fails. And I'm so grateful that we get the privilege of journeying through it together. And so I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn with me to Revelation 2. We are going to finish Revelation uh, 2 this this morning. And... um, if you don't have your Bible with you, I do want to, um, I'd love to give you one or lend you one. There should be a, a hardback black one or, or blue one uh, around you. If you grab that one, if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one, but um, you can follow along with us as we journey through this, uh, this text this morning. We have been walking through church by church, week by week, through the seven churches in Revelation. And we are making our way now to the fourth church, the church of Thyatira. Um, And and Jesus in in these churches has just been, he has been addressing each one of them, basically giving them a report card, if you think about it like that, of, of saying, I see this in you. And then in many cases, he says, but I also see this where you're missing it. And he gives this, these, this report card to the churches. And each one of these churches have been just so different. They've been so, they've been so different. And, and I believe that through each one, God has been kind of revealing things in me, revealing things in us that as we've journeyed through this. Well, this week, week four, uh, we, as we look at this church in Thyatira, we are going to be looking at a tendency. Um, to misunderstand the gospel. We are going to be looking at something today. uh, at, At the very core, we are going to look at a threat that is not unique to this church in Thyatira. But we are going to be looking at a threat that the church faces, that the church has always faced. 
Um, and, and we're going to see that it seeks to cheapen and even destroy the gospel of grace. So I want to get right into it this morning. We'll start in verse 18, where, where Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the, son, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the way Jesus introduces himself. And a tone is, is absolutely set. He identifies himself in three ways. Son of God, talks about his eyes and his feet. Son of God, meaning this is Jesus naming himself, telling us who he, who he is. This is an echo of Psalm 2. And he, this is Jesus saying, this is me, the son of God. Then he moves on and he says, I, he is the one with eyes like flames of fire. He is talking about the fact that the, the righteous judge, Jesus, sees all. He sees all. And, 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 and it deals here that Jesus looks through like a purifying fire, looks through the outer stuff and sees the heart. And we're going to see this in our text. And finally, he says, the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, this is a reference to his ability to judge, his ability to judge, bring all things to his feet, trample over all that is evil. This is Jesus. This is how Jesus is introducing himself to this church. And here is what he says, verse 9, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So Jesus starts here with the positive. He starts with the positive, and this is really important. See, Jesus sees this church who has been faithfully doing the works, who has been patient and faithful in their service to the Lord. And, and get this, this church had been planted for a while, and the works that they're currently doing, they're even better than the works they were doing. This church is, is doing great things. On the outside, it looks awesome. They look great. Um, this is a good church. They are doing great things in their community. This was this church. They, social issues, problems in the community. This church was there bridging the gap. That was this church. And Jesus, he commends them for this. He commends them for this. But here's the thing. Jesus is again the one with those flaming eyes, the one who sees all things, sees through all things to the heart. And this is what he says in verse 20, but I have this against you. You ready? I don't care. I'm going. Here we go. That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So Jezebel here, um, the name Jezebel is never going to appear on the top baby names for Christian parents. There's a good reason for that. Uh, good reason for that. Uh, in First and Second Kings, we get introduced to, to Jezebel, and she is a fearsome Thing to behold. Uh, she is the one who comes against the prophet Elijah. She's the one who comes against 
the, the movement of Yahweh. She is the one who is committed to pagan gods. She is the one actively opposing the things of God. That's Jezebel. And in the Old Testament, uh, tells us that she was evil in the sight of God. She was evil in the sight of God. In 2 Kings 9, uh, she eventually faces judgment for this. She faces judgment for this. And, and um, through it all, uh, it, the, through the biblical narrative, Jezebel has become somewhat of a type. That's why we don't name our little girls little Jezebels. Um, she's become somewhat of a type. She, she represents kind of evil personified. If you're, gonna, if, you're, if you're looking to name someone who is opposing actively the gospel, then Jezebel fits. She personifies this. Um, and listen, there are several interpretations as you look at our, our text here in, in uh, Revelation for who exactly this Jezebel is. Like, is, is, is she an actual person named Jezebel in this church? Who is, who is, is there someone actually named Jezebel? Or, or is there someone who kind of fits the Jezebel spirit, the Jezebel personification here in this church? Or does Jezebel just mean something totally, di- like, there's, there's all these different interpretations. But listen, I want to be clear here about what is going on. Scripture is pulling us, our attention back to the biblical character of Jezebel for a reason. And, and whether this person was a literal Jezzy in the church, um, that's my short nerd, I, anyway. Um, whether it was a literal person or whether it was a person who shared some of her terrible qualities, whatever it might be, um, the point here, church, the point here doesn't change. Uh, the people of God were being enticed, seduced, and taught in ways that were leading the people of God to blatant sexual immorality. That's what was going on in this church. That is the point here that is being made. And, and I want to be clear about something here. This is a theological problem. This is a theological problem. In fact, this is kind of cool. I think we can put our finger right on the theological problem. Right smack on it. Um, and I think this, this is best represented in a bit of a pendulum swing. So, so how many know that we can often, as people, go from one extreme to the other. And that sometimes when we go to one extreme, we, we realize the error of the ways. And so what do we do? We run all the way to the other. And we, we just err equally as bad, but to the opposite direction. This pendulum swing here. I think we see one here. So, so here's what we see. On, on one side, we have legalism. Good old nasty legalism. That's on, that's on this side. Legalism says it's all about what you do. It's all about your works. If you do good, if you're obedient, then God likes you. He might even love you if you're really good. But at least he's going to prefer you over the people who aren't as good. That's legalism. 
Legalism says that if you're more moral, if you're more obedient, God will like you. He will save those who listen to him. He will will have grace on those who obey him. This is legalism. On the other side of that, God's not going to like you if you're bad. God's not going to prefer you if you're less obedient than the other guy. This is legalism. And, and biblically, if we think biblically on this, the people that most cleanly represent this idea of legalism, especially during the time of Jesus, are the, the good old Pharisees who, who kind of lead the charge. And when I think of legalism, this is who I think of. And Jesus affectionately calls them whitewashed tombs. They are nice and pretty on the outside, and there's death on the inside. That's legalism. It is not the gospel. It is anti-gospel. It is a misunderstanding and misuse of the gospel. And, And hear me, you are not saved because you are good. You are saved because he is good. You... He poured out his grace on you, demonstrated his great love for you while you were dead in your sin. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you, this is the gospel. So legalism, swinging over here, is a bankrupt idea, a bankrupt attempt of understanding the gospel. Um, At least it's this bankrupt way that we try to make ourselves more worthy than, than others. And so over here, we understand this is bondage. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why over here doesn't work. It's bondage. But that's a different message because that's not what we see in our church. In Thyatira, the church we're looking at today, this is nasty. So what do you do? Ooh, let's swing it. Let's swing the pendulum way to the other side from legalism to a big, long word of antinomianism. It's a nasty word. Really, it's just two Greek words smushed, and it means anti, meaning against, namos, meaning law, against the law, okay? So antinomianism uh, swings this way over here. So what this means is it's a belief that we are saved by grace, not by the law, so why does it matter? That we are saved by, we're not saved by our works or by our obedience, so whoop, they don't matter, right? They don't matter. We're not saved by them. They're not, they don't matter. And in fact, that way of thinking, that's the old way. That's the old way of thinking. That is bondage. All that old stuff, that law stuff, Jesus came, so all of that is done. All of that is done. Now it's love all the time. We've been set free. By grace, we are free. And in this theology, sin is almost celebrated. It's almost celebrated because there's a new morality. There's a new way of doing things. There's a new way of thinking about sin. The most common definition that you're probably going to find if you were to look up this big nasty word, antinomianism, 
is that it is a view that rejects laws or legalism and argues against moral, religious, or social norms. So it's a view that rejects laws or legalism. It, no, that's nasty. Over here. And, and argues against moral, religious, and social norms. Listen, the reason I bring this big nasty word up is because most scholars believe that this word, antinomianism, this way of thinking, originated in the city of Thyatira, in the church of Thyatira. Meaning, I think we can put a pinpoint on what this church is dealing with, of what led them to get this progress report from Jesus. It's a theology that argues against the old religious the religious sexual ethic argues against that the the old way in order to push forward to a more free sexual ethic one in which god does not define sexual immorality but one in which we do because that's the old way that's the old way and so we get to define our own sexual morality does that sound familiar There's nothing new under the sun, Um, nothing. We like to think that we're coming up with new and novel things, but really the truth is that as we wander from the gospel, we tend to just wander down already tread paths. The pendulum has swung. And I want to be clear here. Legalism, bankrupt attempt to earn grace. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by grace through faith period, legalism is bondage, with equal fervor, we have to say, we must say, as people who hold this as our authority, we must absolutely say that antinomianism is bankrupt. It is bondage. It's, 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 it's just as nasty. And Here's, here's the way to think about it. Both of these pendulum swings, legalism, antinomianism, they're misunderstandings of three things. The law of God, the grace of God, and sin. So over here on legalism, they see the law of God as given to us in order that we may earn favor. They see grace as something that is earned, and they see sin as something that is lethal. As we swing the pendulum over here, they see law is is bondage given to us to overcome, that we can redefine or even ignore it. They see grace as cheap, and they see sin as no big deal. Both of these things, wrong and wrong, wrong and wrong. Both are misuses of the gospel. The gospel says, listen, the law is not given to you so that you can be saved by it. The, the law is, is not given to you to make God like you more. But also the law was not given to you so that you can say, thanks God, throw it away. Ignore that one. The law was not given to you so that you can redefine it, make adjustments so that it fits you better. Both of those are abuses. The gospel 
says that the law was given to you for his glory and our good so that we can flourish as his creation, so that we can be more like him. Let's talk about the grace of God. See, the, law, the gospel says that grace is not earned. It's also not cheap. The gospel says, no, grace is costly. And yet it was freely given through Jesus Christ. And let's talk about sin. Let's talk about sin. The gospel reminds us that we, that you have not out the cross. And at the same time, don't you dare view sin flippantly because Jesus hasn't. The gospel says sin has been defeated by Jesus Christ and that now we have been forgiven through the cross for all sin, past, present, future. He is faithful and just to forgive. Both pendulum swings are nasty distortions of the good news. Both are both are bad theology. Both are bad theology. This early church had swung the pendulum, not over here, had swung it over here to antinomianism. They had swung it, and it was not only a problem of practice of what they were doing. This was a problem of theology. It was poor theology that led them to poor practice. What you believe will express itself in what you do. What you believe will express, it will find its footing in what you do. And in our text, in this early church, Jesus hones in on something specific. He hones in on sexual immorality. What you believe, your theology will express itself in what you practice. And here, Jesus is connecting theology to sexual immorality. And I want to say this with as much love and care, truth and love, as I possibly can. What I'm about to say, the statements that I'm about to make, are just as true for them way back then as they are for us today. First, Two things. First thing is that God has not left us to figure out, like to make our own way, to figure out which sexual ethic fits us best. God has not not left it for us or our culture to define what is good and what is bad. He has given us his word. And second, this sounds so simple, maybe crazy, but God cares. He He cares. Like, he still cares. So because he loves us, because we are created in the image of our God, and he, he has given us his will for us to thrive, for us to, to, to flourish as human beings. He's given us his will and design for sex in order to bring him glory and for our good. To image him well that we may thrive. God has given us his heart and his plan because he cares. And again, just as true for them back then as it is for us today. He cares. Our practice is theological. And so the question we need to ask then is, do we believe and trust God that he is good, that he loves us? Do we 
do we trust this? Do we trust this? Do we believe that this tells us the truth? Do we believe it is true? For the early church, this church in Thyatira, they were seduced to believe that God's laws were outdated. That they did not, that God didn't really care what they did or practiced. And, and, and here, I set the stage because in, in verse 21, we start to see the gravity. We start to see the outcome of these ways of thinking. And, and in verse 21, Jesus is going to begin to address two groups of people. We're going to start with group number one. Group number one are the people who, in this church, who were wrapped up in this. They were participating in the sexual immorality. More accurately, they're the ones who are wrapped up in the theology that would lead them to this kind of sexual immorality. That's group number one, and Jesus is going to speak directly to them, starting in verse 21. Verse 21 says, I gave her, it's our girl Jezebel here, I gave her time to repent. He was patient, gave her time, uh, but she refuses to repent for her sexual immorality. At this point, he's talking to Jezebel. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and now listen, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. Notice the pronouns here. Unless they, the people seduced by her, repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. All right, we're going we're gonna to unpack this one. Um, Jesus cares greatly about this. This is not flippant or unimportant. Jesus takes this seriously. This is a weighty statement here. Look at this again, verse 22. He starts with the sickbed. I'm gonna throw her onto a sickbed. This is a reference back to the bed of sexual immorality. What was, Jesus takes the bed of fornication and he turns it into a sickbed. That's what sin does. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw in great tribulation unless they repent of their works. These are, this is the first group of people, the people who were enticed and seduced into sin. These are the people who believed Jezebel. And this whole antinomianism way of thinking. And then this really weighty statement, verse 23, I will strike her children dead. This is a really heavy statement. This is referring not only to the first generation of this Jezebel thing, but the generations to come. The generations to come. Future generations of this heresy. That's how much Jesus cares about this. He takes this seriously. And I want you to remember, how did Jesus introduce himself? Son of God with the flaming eyes and the bronze feet. The son of God, flaming eyes, meaning he sees all. The bronze feet, meaning he judges all. Here in verse 23, Jesus lives into that introduction. He says in verse 23, and all the churches will know, what will they know? That I am he who searches mind and heart. There are his eyes. And I will give to each of you according to your works. There are Jesus is the son of God as the righteous judge. 
He is, he is speaking directly to this pendulum swing. He's speaking directly to this theology. And, and what you believe, church, is not severed from what you do. And he speaks directly into this when he, when he says he, he, he sees and he, he's going to judge according to your works. According to your works. He, he's basically saying, you say you're an apple tree, then you're going to have apples. And, and don't swing the pendulum back to legalism. Legalism says, hey, you need to start producing apples to become an apple tree. That's not what I'm saying. What, I, what Jesus is saying here is, is that you produce apples because you are an apple tree. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus is saying he is going to judge according to your works, not that your works earn you anything, but that your fruit is exactly that, a fruit of the work. And Jesus is, is looking directly at this, and he says, I am the one who searches the mind and heart. I will give each of you according to your works. Jesus, the Son of God, sees all, judges all. That is to group number one. But remember, there's a second group, group number two, and I want to I direct our attention to this, this group. These are the ones who had not bought into the teaching. These are the, the ones in the church who, although their brothers and sisters were being seduced into this way of thinking, they remained faithful. They did not, they were not seduced by Jezebel. This is group number two, and Jesus says this to them in verse 24. But to the rest of you, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I love this church, listen to this. I do not lay on you any other burden. Okay, I wanna pause. You've probably heard this, that God's not gonna lay on you anything that you cannot handle, you cannot bear. That God knows what you need. This is a perfect representation of Jesus and his compassion, looking at these people, knowing what they need. This is the perfect love of Jesus on display, not giving them more than they can handle. He knew their hearts. He knew their pain. He knew them. And to them, he says, I do not lay on you any other burden. Mm. And then he says in verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. Stay faithful, remain true. You don't need anything else. You don't need any new thing. Only hold fast until I come. Do you believe and trust him that he is good, that he loves you? Do you believe, do you trust this, that this tells you the truth? Then hold fast. Hold fast. Let me add, in a world that is rapidly changing, in a world that is searching for the new, in a world in which we are out of step in, a, in the rushing current of progress, hold fast to what you have until Jesus comes. Church, can I encourage you, can I encourage us this morning, hold fast. Hold 
fast. Fads of the current day will come and they will go. This will stand. Hold fast. Cling hard. Hold fast. And also, let me add to this. Join a community of brothers and sisters holding fast with you. Hold fast until he comes. Hold fast. Let me tell you how it ends. Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, Jesus says, to him I will give authority over nations. Listen to the picture that he paints for us. 27. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. You see this picture painted? There is this picture of authority, like a shepherd's rod of iron strong in contrast to broken earthen vessels. The authority was given by the Father to the Son and to us, his children, his church. And this references that day, and I want to hone in here. The day when Jesus returns to rule over all. And and the people of God reigning with him, he he being the king under King Jesus. And, And think of the contrast here. In a world where the church is persecuted and is broken and is out of step and feels sidelined and is holding to something that is ancient in that world we do not bend we hold fast knowing that we will stand strong when everything breaks into pieces like fragile earthen pots it's such a contrast and in this moment jesus then draws us to consider the day verse 25 until i come and we see him drawing our eyes to that again in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Church, the morning star, that's Jesus. That is Jesus. The morning star is a reference, church, to the return of Jesus. He's pointing our eyes, focusing our eyes ahead. Later in Revelation in twenty-two sixteen, 16, right at the end of all of Scripture, the end of the Bible, Um, As Revelation comes to a close, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for, about these things for the churches. Then listen, church, Jesus says this, I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. This is Jesus. This is the promise of his return. Jesus lifts our eyes from the present circumstances to the end of the story. And I want us to take all of this in. Jesus says, hold fast until I come. Hold fast until I come. Because look up, I'm coming again. I'm coming again and I will give you myself. I am the bright and morning star. There's so much here. Um, But I cannot finish without this. Listen, hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to this. Current fads and trends, they come and they go. My goodness, if we tried to keep up with them, you can't. You you absolutely 
can't. Not even the revolutionaries can keep up with the revolution. Um, They come and they go, but this will stand. He will stand. And in the end, you will stand with him. Hold fast. Hold fast. And again, don't hold fast alone. Don't hold fast alone. Join a community who will hold fast with you. Join us here. Join us in a community group. Hold fast together. We are stronger together. Hold fast. This will stand. He will stand. And in the end, you will stand with him. Hold fast. Hold fast. And and let me speak before we close to everyone here this morning. Um, let me say this. If, if the call is to hold fast, what do we do when our grip is not as strong as we want it to be? What do we do? What happens when we slip? What happens when we fail? What happens when, when we mess up, when we fail? When maybe we've bought into a pendulum swing? What happens when that is us? Some of, some of you might be there this morning. I want to remind you of Jesus' words as he's throwing Jezebel onto her sickbed and, and, and those who commit adultery with her thrown into great tribulation. What does he say? Unless, unless they repent. Church, repent because he is faithful and he is just to forgive. You have not out the cross. In other words, his grip is stronger than yours. It's always stronger than yours. He will hold you fast. Repent and know the love of Jesus. I'm reminded of a song that we sing here. Um, I thought it would be a perfect way for us to end. Um, I don't know, by the way, if you've ever read hymns devotionally. If you haven't, I recommend it. Um, They often will express things that you want to say. They're just better at expressing it than you. And so when you read it, you say, yes, that's it. And it's it's so edifying. And so I want want to encourage you, if you've never done that, pick up a a hymnal and read some of these beautiful hymns just devotionally. Anyway, I'm off topic. Um... But I'd like to, for us to do that as we close. This is a hymn that does just that. It says what my heart wants to say better than I can say it. And so as we close, I just want to read this over us, all right? When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Verse 3, for my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, 
he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Thank you.